sin acknowledges and pays respect to the owners of the land, the house of sin and studio stand on the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin nations. Sin also acknowledges and pays respect to the elders and the t traditional owners of the lands our content reaches, as well as the radio stations we broadcast from across the country. Welcome to An Hour in the Life. Today I'm speaking with Bridget Williams. She has been the manager for Effective Altruism Australia since April 2017 and is finishing up in that role this week. Effective Altruism is a global social movement that uses evidence and reasoning to determine the most effective way for individuals to have the greatest positive impact based upon their values. In simple terms, effective altruists attempt to answer one question. How can we do the most good? Effective Altruism Australia is a non-profit organisation that helps Australians to do the most good they can with their donations by identifying and supporting programs working effectively to alleviate poverty. In addition to her voluntary work with Effective Altruism Australia, Bridget works in public health and policy research. She has trained in medicine and has worked as a doctor in Melbourne and Darwin. Bridget, it's fantastic to have you on the show. How are you going? I'm going very well. Thanks for having me here, Charlie. No worries at all. So what initially drew you to Effective Altruism? Yeah, so I had a bit of a long path into Effective Altruism, actually. Um, I first got introduced to these ideas in 2010 um, as part of my medical degree. You could do a research year in medical science um, and your research could be based anywhere and it could be in a wide range of topics. So I actually um, did research in bioethics and did it based um, at the University of Oxford with um, the Uhuru mm -hmm. Centre for Practical Ethics there. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Um, and while I was there, I met some of the people who are really kind of the founders of Effective Altruism, um, in particular an, another Australian called Toby Ord, who's an mm -hmm. ethicist and philosopher based in Oxford. Um, and he kind of introduced me to the ideas way back then. Um, so that was kind of before Effective Altruism had a name, but they mm. had started one of the first organisations associated with Effective Altruism. Um, but I didn't really get super into it just then. Okay. <laughs> um, I definitely started to think more about, I guess, my role in the world and how I could help others and mm -hmm. started donating more of my income to charities and thinking a bit more carefully about the, the charities I was supporting. Um, but I didn't really, yeah, get super involved. I kind of came back to Australia and finished up my medical degree and um, then worked as an intern and a junior doctor for a couple of years in hospitals. Mm -hmm. And I guess I was kind of more focused on, yeah, getting through medical school and then getting through those first couple of years as working as a doctor and trying not to kill anyone in the process. <laughs> <laughs> what role do philosophers play in our world today? Because obviously... Philosophers in senior positions in universities aren't the ones affecting policy. Um, do they still play a role? Yeah. I mean, I feel like not being somebody who's really studied philosophy all that well, I feel maybe I'm not qualified to answer this, but um, I think that philosophers definitely do play a role. Mm. Um, I think that, I guess, thinking really carefully about what our values are, um, what it actually means to do good, how you mm. kind of conceive of that. I think those are really important questions to, um, I guess, navigating what we do with our lives, both as individuals and as societies. And yeah. I think that philosophers kind of set the, the process for that in motion. Um, and I think um, certainly some of the philosophers who 
or some philosophers um, focus a bit more on the practical implications of philosophy. Mm-hmm. And Australia's own Peter Singer is probably one of the best examples of that. Yeah. Um, so he's uh, an, an ethicist and really probably one of the best known ethicists who really was, um, I guess, instrumental in bringing philosophy into everyday life and decision-making in everyday life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so do you... How do philosophers affect how people and society operate? Is it only people who are really interested in philosophy that they have an impact upon or do they influence government policy or are there any other ways? Yeah, so I think that there's probably some ways in which philosophers do directly affect government policy by advising and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But then probably more indirectly, they do kind of set the, I guess, the ideas for, for which our actions are based on um mm-hmm. and yeah i mean certainly a great example is the effect of altruism community i think <laughs> um mm-hmm. because they were really started by a group of philosophers who kind of were influenced by these ideas about what good is and what we should be doing with our lives to mm-hmm. then try to make their actions a bit more directed towards the answers that some philosophies give on that yeah. Um, and that's certainly, I think, been impactful in my life <laughs> and also, I think, in the lives of a lot of other people. Yeah. Um, back to you. Yeah. Uh, what are your tasks in your role at uh, Effective Altruism Australia? Yeah, so it's kind of evolved as the organisation has evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've really, um, in the last year, we've gone through a really kind of, um, I guess, important period of growth mm-hmm. going from quite a small grassroots organisation, which is run by volunteers, to now having um, recently hired two part-time staff members to, um, I guess, uh, I guess conduct the operations of the organisation a bit more professionally. Um, so when I first started out, there was a lot of, um, you kind of do everything, so uh, from generating receipts manually and sending them out to donors to responding to queries about the process of making donations um, mm-hmm. to also responding to, I guess, deeper questions about how we pick charities to partner with yeah. and then also questions about the philosophy of effective altruism and the effective altruism community um, outside of Effective Altruism Australia. So is a core function of Effective Altruism Australia to determine which charities are eligible to have a large, significant impact? Yeah, so we um, identify charities that are effectively um, alleviating poverty um, mm-hmm. and are some of the, the world's kind of, um, I guess, best buys in in poverty reduction. Um, mm-hmm. We utilise pretty, pretty heavily the work of an organisation called GiveWell, which mm-hmm. is based in the US. I'm not sure, have you heard of them? Yes, yes, yeah. I have. Yeah, so they conduct really rigorous, in-depth um, mm. evaluations of of charities to try to answer that question of if I'm wanting to do good with my donations and particularly um, do good in helping other people with the, those donations, what, where should I give my money? So they, I guess, start with looking to see if a charity is um, implementing an effective project, mm-hmm. one that's um, supported by evidence to show that it actually does improve lives. Um, and then they look at the, I guess, the efficiency that the organisation is um, or how efficient the organisation is in implementing that, that project mm-hmm. um, and how transparent they are in how they right. run and also whether they would be able to utilise more funds. So, mm. yeah. So why should Effective Altruism Australia do this work if there's um, organisations like GiveWell that are already doing it? 
Yeah, so GiveWell is conducting the research um, and we do pretty heavily use that research. We also okay. kind of um, independently look at the evaluations and um, conduct kind of due diligence checks to make sure that charities um, that we that we think they're a good thing to be supporting. Um, but we do utilise that research pretty heavily because we think that GiveWell does it really well. Um, and there's no point kind of reinventing the wheel and putting more resources in, into doing something that somebody else is doing better. Yeah. Um, but what we do, I guess, is we help Australians specifically to be able to support these organisations. Mm. So we um, uh, accept donations and then re-grant the money on to these highly affected charities. So it helps Australian donors to be able to identify which charities they should be supporting if they're wanting to be effective with their donation um, and makes that process a lot easier. Hmm. So, of course, on an hour in the life, uh, one way we get to know the guest is by the music that they like. Um, so today, Bridget, you've selected a few songs. First up, we've got Deeper Water by Paul Kelly. What does this song mean to you? Um, yeah, so I got introduced to Paul Kelly when I was in high school. So in my VCE year, one of the texts for VCE was Paul Kelly's um, lyrics, which I think is really cool <laughs> looking back <laughs> that VCE did that. Um, before that, I hadn't heard of him. And I really like Paul Kelly for a few reasons. Um, one, I think his songs are really just great stories mm. and they really kind of, um, I guess, show the, the depth and variety of life and that life isn't always perfect, but... It's kind of beautiful in its own way, even with its imperfections. Um, and also, Paul Kelly's music is something that makes me, I guess, feel very Australian. <laughs> I mm. think his, his, like both his stories and his voice and his music, they're very kind of warm and earthy and um, I guess evoke a lot of those feelings of, um, I guess, that love and kind of... Um, I guess, almost pride in Australia. I know it's not a perfect country, but it's, mm. yeah, Paul Kelly's music kind of makes me feel proud to be Australian as well. Yeah, he's definitely an artist to listen to as soon as you're coming back home and those aeroplane wheels hit the ground. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, here it is. Deeper Water by Paul Kelly. On a crowded beach In a distant town at the height of summer, see a boy of five at the warden's edge. So nimble and free, jumping over the ripples, looking way out to sea. And that was Deeper Water by Paul Kelly. You are listening to An Hour in the Life with Charlie Bell, and today I am speaking with effective altruist Bridget Williams. Bridget, what were you like as a child? Um, I was pretty quiet as a kid. Mm -hmm. um, I think very shy and yeah, quite gentle and yeah. quiet. Pretty nerdy, I guess, as a teenager, or I liked studying. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's probably about it. Yep, and did you change at all from a child to a teenager? Maybe not so much child to teenager. I feel mm -hmm. like as I've gotten older, and especially in my late 20s, I'm probably a little bit less shy. Mm -hmm. um, and, like, uh, yeah, 
not quite as quiet um, as I used to be. Um, but I think I'm probably still fairly similar to the, the child I was okay. in some ways. What do you think made you come out of your shell? I think partly it's just getting older. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So I think for a lot of people they find in their late 20s that they, um, I guess, kind of stop caring what other people think right. um, so much at least and are kind of happier to be themselves and do what they think is the right thing to do. Mm. Mm. Do you think being a doctor allowed you to do that also? Any of the skills you learnt as a doctor? To be honest, not really. Mm. <laughs> I think in a way it almost had the opposite effect. Um, oh. Yeah, I think medicine, medical culture can be quite um, tricky at times. I think for some people it's a really great environment. But mm-hmm. to be honest, for me, I found it in some ways a bit suffocating. Oh. Um, yeah, it can be like quite a hierarchical culture, right. which in some ways you kind of need that in hospitals because you need some people to be making the decisions but um yeah there's i think there's some changes to be made to medical culture and i think they're happening slowly um but Mm. yeah in some ways it kind of stifles individuality and creativity right would you ever feel uncomfortable about approaching one of your colleagues uh what do you mean so you say it's quite hierarchical yeah um when i think of that i think that um only some people can um, deal with certain things and maybe more junior people couldn't. Does that mm. at all stifle the connection that you have with other people? Yeah, I think it does. Um, I mean, I don't work in hospitals anymore and I probably okay. won't work in hospitals again. Um, mm-hmm. I'm more interested in, I guess, the the bigger picture things rather than individual clinical medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, my view was that, yeah, a lot of that culture um, was kind of detrimental to to improving patient outcomes because uh, people didn't really feel empowered to speak up if there's they think there's a problem, um, right. which isn't isn't good for a lot of reasons. Yeah, yeah. and and just to recap that the yeah. primary reason that that occurred was because that hierarchy is so important. Oh, I think it's really complicated. Okay. I think there's like a I guess a long culture of hierarchy and a, a culture mm-hmm. of um, working really hard and almost. Um, to the point of martyrdom and mm. almost like um, or really to the point of being detrimental like when you're working 16 hours without a break and or even the time to like go to the toilet or eat or something like at the end of that you're not making good decisions mm. um, and really it would be more sensible for you to um, take a break and I guess recharge your brain so that you could actually make good decisions mm. um, so I think it's partly the hierarchy partly a culture which is I think slowly changing Mm. So the organisations that oversee how doctors operate, mm. um, you're saying that they are recognising this. Is there a fast pace of change in this in, in the way that doctors operate? I don't know if I call it a fast pace. Um, and to be fair, like I haven't, I haven't been as engaged in the I guess the medical community in the last couple of years mm-hmm. as I've moved more into public health. Yeah. Um, even though that's still kind of a medical specialty, it's a little bit removed from the clinical world. Um, but certainly there is um, a lot of discussion of um, well-being amongst doctors. Um, doctors have a very high suicide rate, and mm. particularly um, female doctors have um, a higher suicide rate than the rest of the population. And people are really starting to look into why that is and, and whether things should be changed both to improve the, the health of doctors and also to improve their ability to do their jobs and the health of other people. Yeah. I've got a friend that studies medicine and... Um, 
we were talking about this topic about how mental health issues and suicide is sadly a lot higher in the medical field. And his theory was that it's for two reasons. Number one, because the, the work is very stressful, which is obviously very understandable. And then he also thought that it was because the medical field attracts people that might not be able to deal with those situations as best as um, anyone else. Um, mm. They're usually perfectionists and those people might not deal with stress and, and loss and um, everything that, that's hard to deal with as in that field. Um, how, how true do you think that is? Yeah, that's a really interesting take. Um, and I guess one thing that comes to mind is that I think some of the people who um, maybe aren't as able to deal with it, they maybe become perfectionists in their work, uh, often the people who are most empathetic so mm. they really take on other people's misfortune and right. suffering. And there's been some research into like emotional burnout and the, I guess, the, the occurrence of that in amongst doctors. Um, and I think that that's probably a lot of it. Like if I think about my colleagues and friends, um, the ones who maybe your friend would say are least able to deal with it, they're often the people who do just almost care too much. Mm. <laughs> they really... Um, I guess take on their patient suffering and after a while that really kind of takes its toll. Yeah. Do you train yourself not to take that the patient's suffering on I think you? it's really hard and part of me thinks that maybe that's kind of part of the reason I left medicine is mm. I did take it on a bit too much and it's hard to separate yourself from that. Yeah. I think it is also true that you do become a little bit immune to, to some of the suffering. Um, mm. Like for example inflicting pain on people when you're putting the IV drip in them. I remember when I first started doing that as a medical student, I just felt really terrible and felt really mm. guilty. But after a while, you kind of learn to tune that out a bit. Um, so I think to a certain extent, you do become a bit desensitised to it and you probably have to, to be able to do your job well. Mm. Um, but also I think that, yeah, for some people, they might find it hard to really ever kind of let go of um, connecting to other people's suffering. Yeah. I know that um, when you're looking to enter medical school, um, you have to do an interview. Do you know, in those interviews, is it beneficial to come across as empathetic? Um, so I actually acted as an interviewer for a while for uh -huh. Medicine, but that makes me think I shouldn't actually say anything because I wrote, signed a contract saying I wouldn't uh, okay. um, give clues about what they're looking for. Um, yep. So yeah, okay. so actually I'm, I'm going to stop talking now. Okay, no worries at all. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, back to your teenage years. When you were coming to the end of school, did you have much direction about what you wanted to do? Um, look, I think it's really hard <laughs> to know what you want to do. Mm. And I think that, um, yeah, it's a really hard question and probably a lot of the like school's counselling maybe isn't well equipped to answer that or people provide you with the wrong answers. Um, so I think I chose medicine because um, for a few reasons, like it's, clear how you're helping people like it's mm. very direct so if yeah. you're somebody who wants to help um that seems like an obvious choice um even though now kind of considering things from an effective altruism perspective it's probably not the, oh, wow. the career that does the most good by a long shot huh. um but then also additionally it's uh, a career that i guess combines um connection with people with i guess more scientific knowledge and needing to kind of use your brain and exercise your your mental capacity in your work as well. 
Mm. Um, so it seems very attractive. And also, like, it's a well-respected profession and um, fairly stable and secure employment as well, which um, is, like, practically that's, I guess, important as well. Huh. I find that very interesting that, that you say, with your involvement with effective altruism, you, it's clear to you that it's perhaps not the best way to impact other people's lives. Um, which profession or lifestyle do you think an average person is able to have the most positive impact? Yeah, so I think um, how one person or any individual has the most positive impact, I think is going to be really dependent on that person. Mm -hmm. Um, Their position in life, their um, skills and experience, their personal attributes. Um, I think for a lot of young people today, um, I think they, they have a, like a tremendous opportunity to think really carefully about what career they should pick to have the biggest positive impact. Um, and in that, thinking carefully about what, what problem their career is trying to solve and tailoring, I guess, their career to try and solve that problem. Um, but then for a lot of people, and particularly people who are maybe further along in their career, Um, It's not really realistic to change your career towards doing good. So that's, I think, where doing good through donations is often, um, I guess, an easier path to to implementing positive change. Um, There's certainly, like, a lot of different ways to do good. So what careers do you think... uh, Well, yeah, what what Mm. jobs can have the largest positive impact? Yeah, so there's actually an organisation called 80,000 Hours. I don't know if you've heard of them. No, I haven't. Oh, okay. Um, So they're probably one of the bigger effective altruist aligned or or effective altruism aligned organisations. And they aim to answer exactly that question. Like if you're wanting to do good with your career, um, what should you do? Mm. Um, So they have really, really good advice on their website, um, which I guess... They've got a careers guide, which is, I think, useful for anybody at any stage of their careers to have a look at, even if they don't care about doing good. <laughs> it's just mm. quite useful. Yeah. Um, but they give really good advice on that question about how you should think about doing good and tailoring it to, yeah, your, your attributes and your personal fit for a job. Wow. Um, and does that also um, consider things like uh, maybe um, you could do this career, it's not going to have a positive impact, however, you could earn a lot of money and don- donate that to have positive impact yeah yeah so they do um and that was there's this idea or it's a concept called earning to give Mm. (laughs) so um one of the kind of earlier ideas in effective altruism was that um instead of working for a non-profit you could have a greater impact by um taking a really high paying career and donating a lot of that money um Mm. now they're actually um they don't really recommend that a lot of people take that option these days. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's that's been a shift and they're actually, <laughs> I feel like people will be unhappy with me even talking about earning to give because it's kind of a message that has stuck with the effective altruism community right. with 80,000 hours longer than they would have liked it to. Yeah, and I, I have to be honest, I thought that was what effective altruism was mostly about. Yeah, and I think it's um, a combination of maybe that being like back in the day um, when they were, I guess like a few years ago, that was, um, I guess, quite a a different sounding idea. So it attracted a lot of attention. And Mm. therefore, because it attracted a lot of media attention, it kind of stuck around a little bit longer. um, And uh, I guess is a bit easier to comprehend and a little bit more clickbaity than Mm. uh, the more sophisticated and nuanced ideas that that, um, go along with it. Right. It makes sense because it sounds like, hey, I can still work that job where I earn a lot of money. Yeah. And... 
have a good impact as well. Yeah, and for some people, it is the right choice. Um, mm. if, if you're particularly good at earning money, um, then maybe that is the right choice for you to do because you're actually, yeah, you're clearly kind of di- redirecting a lot of the world's wealth towards positive causes rather mm. than mindless consumption. Um, but I think some of the reasons why that's not considered the best option for most people these days is that um, there's a better understanding of just how important um, personal fit is for a lot of roles. Mm. And so for a lot of nonprofits, um, the skill set that they require is really niche. So if you're a really um, talented, intelligent person, um, you could actually potentially be a lot better than whatever person that they would hire instead of you. Uh, so people used to talk about this idea of replaceability, like don't take a job at a non-profit because you could be replaced by somebody who will do just as good a job. Yeah. Um, so therefore you should go and earn to give because someone will do the job at the non-profit, but somebody won't be redirecting funds from um, that high-earning corporate job to good causes. Yeah. But now I think there's um, a much better understanding that actually, no, some people are a lot better at doing a job <laughs> and also yeah. a lot of employers will wait for the right person. So if you're offered mm. a job and you think that you're a really good fit for it, you should probably take it and, and do it really well. Yeah, and I, I can definitely agree with that just in my own experience. Um, people know me, I work in management consulting and um, my work, we've, we've held vacant roles open for a long time until someone that suits it has come along. Yeah. So what, which jobs typically have the largest positive impact that 80,000 Hours recommends? Yeah, so I guess... Um, uh, one of the ways to think about it is the, the causes that the jobs are, or the fields that the, the jobs are in. Um, and w- one kind of shift in the effective altruism community over, that's happened over the last few years is that uh, people have started to think that one of the best ways to improve the world is to focus on improving the long-term future. So mm-hmm. that if you value lives regardless of where they are in time. So if they're yeah. people who are alive today versus people who are alive in the future, right. there's just so many more people that are going to come in the future and the impact of our actions is going to, I guess, be hugely influential on how the world is in the future. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense to try and set things on the right path. Um, so a lot of the jobs that are recommended by places like 80,000 Hours are jobs that are aiming to ensure that the future goes well. And they've looked really carefully and done a lot of research into the best ways to improve the future. Um, And actually one of the things that they talk about a lot is ensuring that artificial intelligence is developed well to um, ensure the best kind of positive outcomes for future generations. Right. And these sorts of jobs, the ones that you've just mentioned, are they very skills-based or are they areas that almost anyone can get involved Yeah, so there's a real variety. Um, So... Mm -hmm. So I guess the yeah, artificial intelligence is, I think, uh, coming up in all aspects of our life um, mm-hmm. and really kind of shaping lives in a lot of different ways. Um, and there's the potential for it to be um, either go really, really well and create a lot of really good um, well-being or positive well-being in the world, yeah. or there's the potential for it to go really badly and, I guess, lead to dystopian scenarios or potentially even the extinction of the human race yeah. <laughs> or the loss of all life on Earth, which would obviously be pretty bad. Mm. Um, but yeah, so within that, there's obviously like a really kind of broad range of roles that are necessary to make that go well, whether that's from working on the technical issues of how you develop artificial intelligence and machine learning software to, um, I guess, be developed safely, but then also issues in terms of, um, 
I guess, global cooperation on how it's developed and governance of development and use of technologies is um, a big part of it as well, which uh, I guess doesn't require as much of the technical kind of computer programming knowledge, but requires more an understanding of things like politics, policy, international relations, economics, um, things like that. Yeah. But but that's kind of just one area. There's also um, a lot of other areas that um, people think are really important for doing good. So um, another area is, I guess, um, reducing the the risk of really bad pandemics. So that's been something that's been identified by a lot of people, including Bill Gates, as um, an area where there's the potential for a lot of damage in the future. Right. Um, and then also, of course, uh, there's still a lot of value to be had in helping people who are alive today. So um, working to, I guess, identify the really effective ways to reduce poverty is another area. Mm-hmm. Um, and additionally, working to, I guess, improve the lives of non-human animals is something that a lot of people find very important as well. Right. Um, and within that, there's um, a lot of people, There's, I guess there's different ways to focus on that, but one thing that's coming up is um, thinking about the development of meat alternatives yeah. and how creating a, a viable alternative to factory farmed meat yeah. could be one of the best ways to actually improve the lives of um, farmed animals rather than other more traditional meca- meth- sorry, methods like um, vegan advocacy or things like that. Yeah, I think that the grown meat if, if that can effectively occur, that's that's going to change the world. Yeah, yeah. In terms of animal suffering and sustainability, it's, it's going yeah, to be amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Both for animals and, as you say, the impact on the climate of mm. um, of factory farming is huge. So there's a lot of, I guess, potential good that could come from that. Yeah. And was it 80,000 Hours, the website itself, that had a large impact in changing your shift in your career direction from a host- from working as a doctor to other areas within the medical field? Yeah, it definitely played a role. Um, yeah. Their, yeah, I think their ideas really made me reconsider the value of um, clinical medicine if you're somebody who's focused on doing the most good po- possible. Yeah, um, yeah it, it, I guess, encourages you to think of the bigger picture and to reconsider your traditional ideas of how to, I guess, have an impactful career. Yeah. yeah. Could you give our listeners um, a few more specifics about the work that you do now in your job? Oh uh, yeah. So um, I work at a public health research institute. Mm-hmm. Um, so doing a, a range of different research, mostly focused on infectious diseases and how to improve health policy um, to, I guess, reduce the burden of infectious diseases. Um, and I guess in line with eighty thousand hours careers advice, <laughs> I'm looking at shifting that more towards reducing the impact of um, or the the risk of um, really large sta- scale pandemics, um, which uh, due to a number of factors um, have the potential to cause a lot of damage um, to humanity. Um, I guess there's a, a few different reasons or um, different things creating an environment of greater risk of pandemics. So Mm -hmm. one of them would be increased urban density. Um, A lot of people living in really big cities and that's kind of the perfect breeding ground for a lot of diseases. Um, But also the increased connectedness of the world. There's a lot of planes going around Mm -hmm. everywhere. So it just takes um, one person on a plane to um, uh, transport a disease to a completely different continent really quickly. Um, But also some of the implications of new technologies and the, how they might affect the types of diseases that we have in the future and our ability to combat them too. Yeah. 
to your knowledge, does 80,000 Hours or maybe any other similar um, organisation, do they warn against people who might be good in an interview but not good at delivering in that job? Yeah, so I don't know if 80,000 Hours talks about that so much. They're kind of trying mm. to help the potential employee. Because rather than you, you could, but in, the, in that case, mm. you could be preventing someone that could do a better job than you. Yeah, that's true. I think um, there's... Yeah, you definitely kind of don't want to take a job that somebody else could do better than you could. Mm. <laughs> that wouldn't be good. Um, and I think there's ways, some of the best ways that people talk about assessing fit for careers is to actually try and do some of the work. So a lot of jobs will have work trials as part of the application process. Right. And they're often, um, I think, a lot better at determining your fit for a job. Okay. And also for you as somebody who wants to know if you will be able to do a job well, because obviously that's going to have an impact on how much you enjoy it. Um, it's kind of important to try and test out doing the work um, before you commit to working in a job. And is that something 80,000 Hours advocates for? Um, yeah, I'm not sure if they... I think they, they definitely advocate um, trying to test out different um, options for careers before you yeah. settle on one. So kind of keeping your options open and exploring and, yeah, doing work to, to test your fit for it. All right, well, we'll jump to our next song. Um, up next, you've got Kabari by Wildflower. What does this song mean to you? Um, yeah, so Wildflower is um, a band from East Arnhem Land up in the Northern Territory. Oh. Um, so, yeah, you mentioned at the start that I worked in Darwin for six months. Um, mm -hmm. I was there working in the hospital. And I'm really glad I did that because um, I think as an Australian, I really appreciated having, I guess, some... Uh, exposure to Aboriginal culture. Yeah. I think growing up in Melbourne, um, there is you know some exposure to Aboriginal culture here, but unfortunately, probably not enough to show the richness and depth of um, Aboriginal culture around Australia. Mm. So I'm certainly no expert <laughs> on Aboriginal culture, but um, this this song, I guess, um, is I guess reminds me of that time in Darwin and an appreciation of the I guess the the richness of Aboriginal culture in Australia. Here it is, Kabari by Wildflower. And that was Kabari by Wildflower. You're listening to An Hour in the Life with Charlie Bell, and today I'm talking with Bridget Williams, who is an effective altruist and works in the medical field. Uh, so, Bridget, what was the first social justice or non-profit cause that you got involved with? Um, to be honest, I think my interest in improving the world was kind of started by effective altruism and my engagement with that. Mm. So I think prior to that, I'd probably... Um, 
yeah, like donated to a few things when people asked me to, um, did mm. the 40 hour famine when other people were doing it at school. Yeah. Um, but yeah, even despite all my Catholic education, I didn't really kind of get super involved in, in trying to help other people until I got involved in effective altruism. Wow. So was it a moment just where it clicked to you? For some people, it's, it's a build up. Yeah, I think for me, it was a bit of both. So okay. as I mentioned at the start, um, I first got exposed to these ideas in like 2010. And then it wasn't until um, I actually took a year off work after working for two years as a doctor and mm -hmm. I spent a bit of time traveling. Um, and I think it was a combination of being overseas and um, meeting people who, you know, weren't in the direst poverty. I wasn't in the poorest parts of the world, but just seeing the, the vast disparity of um, wealth and opportunity between myself and them. Mm -hmm. So here was I, this 23-year-old who'd worked for a couple of years and I could afford to take time off and go and like have a great time around the world um and I remember being in South America and um you know people sometimes get robbed <laughs> and tourists mm. sometimes get robbed in South America and I was contemplating that and then thinking if somebody did rob me how could I really blame them like why is this wealth mine and not theirs to start with yeah. um so that was I think one moment that sticks in my mind but um mm. then I think um later on in that year I read the book doing good better by William McCaskill, who's one of the founders of Effective Altruism. Um, so I think it was a combination of, yeah, having the time to think, uh, seeing poverty and inequality firsthand, and then having a, a reintroduction to these ideas that I'd heard about five years earlier um, that kind of all combined made me think, yes, I really should be doing a lot more towards improving the world and helping other people. Mm. I think um, that's a really shared experience between a lot of people that have travelled, seeing mm. people in, in um, conditions where they're clearly not as privileged as you. Um, yeah, a lot of people relate with that. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think what's impressive about a lot of people in effective altruism is they actually don't need that experience. <laughs> so mm. a lot of people just hear these ideas and they're like, yeah, that makes so much sense. I should be, um, my wealth can do a lot more for other people. Um, mm. So I should be using it that way. Um, so so in a way, I feel like a, a little bit guilty that I didn't have that epiphany mo moment straight away and I needed a bit more time to sit in with the ideas and to, to have that, um, I guess, more tangible experience of, of experiencing inequality. Right, yeah. It, it seems like effective altruism it can be logically explained in a lot of different ways and in a lot of different fields. The one that comes to mind, my mind is um, having studied economics. I think the utility of one, uh, maybe let's say $5 spent on myself, that's a fraction of the utility that um, someone mm -hmm. in a developing country um, um, will gain by spending that $5 on whatever they need that five dollars yeah. for whereas me you know might, might be a chocolate bar or something yeah exactly yeah it's um if you're after a bargain <laughs> then yeah. effective altruism delivers that really well yeah. as long as you value other people's um well-being is at, at least to some large extent as much as you value your own but mm. yeah it's absolutely true that you know twenty dollars for me doesn't mean very much um but it can have a really significant impact for other people yeah mm. a, a chocolate bar versus a mosquito net that could prevent someone from getting malaria. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it, it seems like effective altruists do recognise the suffering of animals. How would ref effective altruists respond to a comment made by meat eaters that say, 
eating meat is a natural thing that occurs. It's the circle of life. Why should we care about what happens to animals? Yeah, so um, I think one thing that comes to mind straight away is that there's a lot of bad things that are natural. Um, so mm. diseases like polio, measles, they're all natural, but we think that they're bad. Mm. Um, so just because something's natural doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's it's true that human humans have evolved as omnivores mm-hmm. um, and for for a long time optimal nutrition has involved eating animal products but I think mm-hmm. that one of the really wonderful things about progress in society is that mean it means that we can develop morally as well so we no longer have to eat meat to to have really good nutrition and to flourish and survive so I think that that's uh, not really the best argument to use these days mm. yeah and um, the thing that pops to my mind there is um, hearing Peter Singer talk is saying, um, like, for example, humans evolved for patriarchy to become normal and humans evolved um, to kill each other and fight wars. Yeah, exactly. But we've we've progressed yeah. part of that on the whole yeah. compared to what it used to be. Which I think is a really great thing that we've progressed. And it's yeah one of the best things about humanity is that it is developing morally and has developed a lot. Um, or, yeah, the morality, I think, of humanity has developed a lot in the, the last, you know, I guess over over millennia, um, mm. and hopefully it will continue to improve. Because um, I think there's certainly a, w- a lot of ways in which we will, or humans could improve. Yeah. What about the other argument that meat eaters might have, which is by consuming animals, we're giving life to them. For example, if if it wasn't for the demand for the steak, that cow wouldn't have existed. Yeah. What do you say? What do you think most effective altruists would argue? Um, or how would they refute that? Yeah. So um, I think that for a lot of factory farmed animals, the conditions that they live in are actually really, really awful. Mm. Um, And perhaps um, uh, you could consider their lives net negative because of the the amount of suffering um, that that Mm. their lives involve. Um, It's probably not true for all animals that are consumed for meat. That Mm. probably um, a lot of cows that... um, could have quite nice lives, <laughs> um, or at least lives that were net positive. Um, but I think that the way that our society is set up to really favour factory farming creates a lot of um, just lives that are intense suffering. Mm-hmm. So it seems like comparatively quite a new thing th- um, that society is measuring the impact of charity. Mm. Why do you think it's taken so long? Or why, why, why didn't it exist prior to maybe 10 years ago yeah I mean it's kind of um it's an interesting question because also I think for a lot of people when they think about doing good or giving to charity they don't intuitively think about what the impact of their donation is Mm. um you might give because somebody asks you to on the street Mm. or because your friend is running a marathon and they ask you to um or if you have some personal connection to a cause so one of your family members suffers from the disease Um, but we tend to just think, oh, we're, we're giving money, we're doing good. But I think if you uh, really put as at the core of your purpose is wanting to help others, then when you're thinking about your donations, you also almost think about them as investments. You're, mm. And so just in the way that you would invest for yourself, you would do a lot of research. If you're investing in the good of the world, you also want to do a lot of research to make sure that you're investing wisely. Do you think perhaps the focus of charity still and for a long time could be 
people wanting to feel like they're having an impact to maybe satisfy that need without within them without actually doing it completely altruistically yeah that's true i think there's definitely true that people get um like a warm glow from mm. doing good um mm. and yeah it doesn't matter what you do <laughs> to, yeah. to yeah to, you still get that warm glow and it might not always be aligned with the actual outcome yeah exactly like you've done your part in mm. the action of doing good but it beyond that it doesn't matter too much what it achieves mm. um why are people altruistic yeah that's a good question um <laughs> i think that probably yeah and this isn't something that i've researched um so this mm. is me just i guess speaking on my guesses yeah um but i think we're probably evolved to be social creatures and mm. to have connection to others that probably helped us survive in the past yeah. um, and will continue to help us survive hopefully in the future mm. um, so I think that's probably part of what drives um, altruism but then of course you could say that we also want to act selfishly to protect our own interests mm. which goes against that a little bit um, but I think that probably as we become more wealthy and particularly in wealthier countries um, we are going to seek out meaning for and purpose in our lives. Mm. Like when our basic needs are met, yeah. then you've kind of got to develop a new project, um, which I think is maybe uh, where altruism comes in. So yeah. your needs are met. Um, so it makes sense to try and help other people to, to meet their needs as well. Yeah. I feel like some people seek out that meaning through things like, uh, like buying things. That, that mm. gives people some innate feeling. And... Um, you know, it, it does the job for some people. Um, for example, people get a lot of satisfaction from a nice car or a yacht or whatever it may be. Mm. Um, how do you... How does, well, how does the effective altruist community go about trying to convert people from that way of thinking to way of thinking that you can get more value or a lot of value out of donating that money to an effective cause? Yeah, so I think there's... Um, it's probably a not all that controversial to say that um, that, I guess, sense of satisfaction you get from a new thing, whether it's like a new piece of clothing or a new yacht, it fades um, mm. pretty quickly after a couple of weeks. Yeah. I think there's been some psychological research into that yeah. Um, yeah. and certainly research into comparing, I th I'm just going off the top of my head, but comparing um, people who won the lottery and their life satisfaction a year after that happened with mm. people who um, suffered a debil debilitating illness or um, became a paraplegic. And there wasn't a lot of difference between the people who um, won the lottery a year later and mm. the people who'd um, become a paraplegic a year later. They wow. kind of were back to their baselines. So I think oh. we adjust pretty quickly to wow. changes, <laughs> whether yeah. that's positive or negative. Um, but obviously that's not always the case. There's going to be individual factors that influence that. Um, so, yeah, so I actually think that, yeah, effective altruism, although it is altruistic and I think at its core it is about helping other people rather than helping yourself, um, people involved in it do get a lot of positive benefit out of it. Um, I know for myself, like, it uh, certainly brings about a lot of happiness in my life and mm. I don't know if that's having meaning or being able to get off that hedonic treadmill a little bit where you're constantly seeking out newer and bigger and shinier stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, it certainly, yeah, I think brings around a lot of, um, 
positive conscious experience <laughs> for yeah. a lot of people involved. Why, why do you think you get such positivity from giving what you've earned? Um, I think it provides that meaning that a lot of people are looking for. Mm. So I think, yeah, you, you maybe some people try to seek it in new stuff, but like I said, that can that fades and that feels a bit empty. Mm. Um, so I think having a meaning and a purpose is really important for people because um, otherwise you're like, well, why am I doing this? <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, I think that's, that's probably a big part of it. Yeah. All right, well, we'll jump on to our next song. Next, you have selected Flawless by Beyonce. What does this one mean to you? Yeah, so I guess um, in the last couple of years, um, kind of coinciding with my involvement or increasing involvement in effective altruism, I've also become a bit more aware of feminist ideas, as I'm sure mm. a lot of people have, with things like the Me Too movement and a lot more discussion about this. Yeah. Um, and it really has been pretty, I guess, influential in how I think about um, like myself and my life purpose. Mm. <laughs> I do think it's true that um, a lot of the ways that our society um, is raised to consider gender roles causes a lot of harm both for women and men. And for women, I think it um, makes them, uh, I guess, uh, limit themselves and, and to question what they're actually capable of. So um, reading feminist literature and um, seeing things like the, the speech in, that's sampled in the song by Chimamanda Nozziati Che, um, that really kind of made me question what I'm capable of and what my, the purpose of my life could be. Mm. Just one quick question before we play the song. In the uh, gender equality movement and gender equality sphere, what do you think is the biggest area of um, where there's room for improvement? Where's the low-hanging fruit? I mean, I don't have a good answer to that because I think it is a really complicated issue mm. and um, one that I don't think there's any one thing that you could read to understand it and we're still kind of developing our understanding of it. Um, right. Yeah, so I'm not, I don't really have a good answer. But yeah. I guess one thing to, that I was going to say to tie this back to effective altruism, I think that um, this is important for things like effective altruism because I do think that both men and women could be achieving a lot more and we could be um, helping to answer these questions of how to improve the world if we were I guess adequately harnessing the strengths of mm. all people regardless of their gender. Here is Flawless by Beyonce. Enjoy everyone. Your challenges are a young group from Houston. Welcome Beyonce, Latibia, Nina, Nikki, Kelly and Ashley the hip-hop rapping girls' time. And that was Flawless by Beyonce. You are listening to An Hour in the Life with Charlie Bell. Today I am talking with Bridget Williams, who is an effective altruist and works in the medical field. So during that break, Bridget and I just talked a bit about feminism and gender equality. And Bridget, you said that you think that there are some natural differences between boys and girls. Are you able to just elaborate on that a little bit? 
Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and I should caveat this by saying that um, that I'm definitely not an expert on this issue, <laughs> but yep. this is just based off kind of things that I've read and mm. um, in the past. Uh, but yeah, I think that a lot of the differences between men and women um, uh, today, in terms of personality and attributes, um, things that might people might think are stronger um, skills generally in men compared to women, or vice versa. Um, I think that definitely a lot of that is going to be socialised, um, mm-hmm. but that also probably is it's true that um, biological factors are also going to uh, play a difference, uh, uh, make a difference, and play a part in the differences between people. Um, and I actually think that that's kind of comforting in a way. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. maybe a year ago I was like, no, no, it's all socialised. Like yeah. men and women are very similar. Yeah, because I I was just telling you during the mm-hmm. break that most of the people that I know that are really involved in feminism um, generally, in my experience, generally say that there isn't any biological difference between boys and girls. Yeah. However, you in the break you were saying that um, medicine's starting to, to disprove that. Um, well, I think that our understanding of the brain and how it works is getting a little bit more developed um, mm-hmm. and understanding how um, different hormones and chemicals in the brain can influence your personality, your actions, your mood... Um, mm. is, I guess, shaping our understanding of yeah, what, what drives actions. And I think it's, it, to me anyway, it seems pretty intuitive that if you've got higher levels of testosterone compared to estrogen, then that's probably going to make you behave in, in a way that's probably different if you had, the, the, I guess, the concentrations around the other way. Mm. Um, but having said that, I do think that probably a lot of the, a lot of the time people attribute differences between genders um, uh, or put too much attribution on biological differences. So, for example, the idea that men are better at maths than than women and putting that down to biological factors, I think, to Mm. me, that doesn't make sense. I can't see how having more testosterone might make you better at doing maths. (laughs) Um, Mm. But I I guess I can see how having having more testosterone might make you, I guess, more confident. and maybe sometimes a little bit more combative to, mm-hmm. to generalise as well. Yeah. Um, which I think that, yeah, that's to me that's kind of uh, a sign of um, some of the ways I think that femininity and female leadership could really be important for the future. Mm. Um, again, this is like a sweeping generalisation, but I think that women are often a little bit more cooperative, yeah. which, again, I think is part of that's probably socialised, um, mm-hmm. but that... Um, differences in hormones might contribute to that as well. And I think having more more leaders who are maybe more prone to wanting to be cooperative rather than wanting to be combative could be potentially quite a important thing for the world. Just before we wrap up, um, if someone wants to get sort of a broad 101 on effective altruism, what can they do? What can they... Any books or videos they should watch? Yeah, so... If you head to the website effectivealtruism.org, that's probably the best kind of starting point. Um, there's quite a long text introduction there, but it's worth reading through that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you are maybe a little bit more, um, uh, if you're not as into, into reading really long text introductions, mm-hmm. uh, they have a resources page, which um, again has some more, um, I guess, uh, lengthy kind of discussions of the topic but then there's also a few videos and podcasts on that yeah um so i think that's a really a really great starting point uh, and if I, c- I can also just add to that also um 
there's a really great uh, TED talk by Peter Singer, who's kind of, I guess people would say, the godfather of modern effective altruism um, that he does. And yeah, it's, I think it's a great sum up. Yeah, yeah, I think that is a really good introduction. Yeah. And I think also the, the book Doing Good Better, I think, gives a really good, um, nice, clean overview of um, the main ideas of effective altruism. And I think that's th- written by Peter Singer? Uh, no, that's or? by William McCaskill. Right. So there's a similar one by Peter Singer called The Most Good You Can Do. And um, I found the one by McCaskill a little bit um, more accessible and okay. a little bit easier to read. But uh-huh. other people might prefer Peter Singer, so <laughs> he's also a good option. Um, yeah, so that would be another good starting point. But I guess just to caveat and say that probably the ideas have developed a little bit more and changed in a few ways since that book was written. Okay. Yeah. And then, just to recap, it was 80,000hours.org, which was... Yeah, so I think 80,000hours.org is a really good website for anybody to look at, um, mm-hmm. regardless of whether you care about having an impact with your career. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but also, uh, effectivealtruism.org is a really good website, too. Uh, well, Bridget, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been fantastic to learn about effective altruism and all of your other areas of knowledge. Um, it's been really insightful. Just before we go, uh, we've got one more song selected by you. It's eight, open brackets, circle, close bracket, circle. Am I saying that right? I don't actually know. Okay, <laughs> we'll go with that. Yeah. Um, by Bon Iver. What does this one mean to you? Yeah, so... Um yeah, I feel like Bon Iver's last album, I wouldn't know how to pronounce most of the <laughs> the track titles on that. So, uh, But anyway, um, I picked this song because I think for me a lot of the motivation to do the work that I do with effective altruism or to continue to, um, I guess, focus my life around helping others, um, mm. it's motivated by just seeing and realising how beautiful the world is mm. and life and existence is. Yeah. Um, and really wanting more people to be able to experience this beautiful kind of magical existence that we've, we've been given um, and acknowledging that for a lot of people there is a lot of pain and suffering which prevents them from experiencing that mm. um, and that, you know, if we mess things up and do things really badly in the next few years, <laughs> we could potentially prevent um, a lot more beings from experiencing this wonderful existence in the future. Um, so I picked this song just because I think it's a really beautiful song <laughs> and yeah. it reminds me of, um, yeah, all the, the beauty in the world that's out there to be experienced by people and beings of all types. Well, thank you again, Bridget. And here it is, eight open bracket circle, close bracket circle by Bon Iver. <laughs> 